Interviewing as a technique of gaining information is as old as humankind. Talking to people as a form of scientific inquiry about their experiences is fun, but also a methodological, moral and theoretical challenge. In the past decades, oral history has become a widely used research method in different disciplines. Given that oral history is a technique and a way of constructing histories, this series of podcasts tries to offer an overview of different ways of how to construct the information and how to analyze it in a wider methodological context. This podcast is designed for those who want to use interviewing as a method of collecting empirical material. It consists of eight sections. The first one is discussing oral history developments, basically the historiography. The second one is analyzing the politics of oral history, who are those who are using interviewing for political reasons. The third one is connecting the social and personal level. The fourth one is discussing ethical and legal dimensions. The fifth one is about practicalities, what to do, how to do, what not to do. The next one is discussing questions and questioning. The seventh one is discussing narrativity, as oral history is using narratives and to understand stories. And the last one, the eighth one, is about interpretation, how to analyze oral history, what are the limits and the possibilities. Every podcast is around 20 minutes each. Thanks for listening, and I hope you will find this podcast series useful. like to do is again start with a, a small quote because that I find the most interesting in my um, uh, work which is the uh, issue about silence. This is the most important enemy and the best friend of an oral historian. So what to do with the silence? The silence when uh, you are asking a question and you have got this silence for a long time. Is it a non-cooperation? How, how you are actually uh, interpreting the silence and how you, what can you do with this? When your project, your question, your intervention is basically met with silence, right? So here is this quote. Silence is a constitutive part of oral history interviews. Silences may express individual or collective forgetting Collaboration, collaborative remembering, discomfort, reluctance, self-censorship, non-compliance, confrontation, reticence, politeness, fear, anger, deceit, taboos, secret, contemplation, concern for the others, reflection, conformity, uh, or that which need not be told. Some silences are explicit or obvious, others are not. Interview silence may be an effect of oppression or agency. Interviewers may use silence to give narrators space to remember or make them talk. Silences in an interview may be consensual or express a communicative struggle. So silences are actually, you know, somehow incorporating all those ethical and kind of practical issues that what you are actually facing when you are doing a, an interview. And silence is one of the most difficult theoretical uh, issues. So if you just look at this list, what silence can mean? And uh, there is one uh, 
kind of um, uh, verb which is missing from this uh, um, long list of uh, uh, interpretations, failure. Because that is my personal experience that when you encounter with the, with the silence, your first immediate reaction that, ooh, I did something wrong. And I just would like to encourage you to think about this long list of other possible interpretations of silence, because that would help you to, uh, to move out from this very difficult communicative position when you want to talk and get engaged and there is nobody over there. But there is somebody always there, right? And you have to think critically about what the silence is. I, of course, I don't want to say that it cannot be a, a major failure when you are encountering with, uh, with silence. Let me give you an example from my own long personal history when I was interviewing this um, uh, uh, conservative and uh, neo-Nazi women in the early 2000s. And of course, all my questions were informed by this Anglo-Saxon feminist literature. And when I started to do the interviewing and I was asking the questions, they were just, there was this silence. And of course, I immediately thought that this is a kind of silence reflecting on me being a kind of leftist feminist who is asking questions and, and going out to talk to this uh, uh, different politi engaged politically uh, uh, people. But it turned out that they simply did not understand. So I started to rephrase those questions using very simple terms. And then I got very good stories and reflection. And we will talk about this, about the, uh, the, the question and questioning uh, section, how to phrase those questions and how to, how to do those um, question and questioning. So what I want to start uh, underline here, and which is important in this slide, is this multiplicity of meanings around silence. And thinking about silence as a um, as a response, as a relation, and also as a, a, a silence might be an effect of oppression or agency. So silence can be an, a, an agency, right? So we, and that raises the question of how to do ethical research, because that's what we are all striving for, right? And when you are writing your MA thesis, which is based on interviews, you definitely have to have a section about ethical concerns. Right? So let me help you to phrase and to develop that particular three, four pages you need to do. And also when you are writing the paper for this class, you should also have a small section about it. So let's see what are the points. First of all, uh, the first point is you have to decide about your passion, whether your research is worth doing or not. Right? So you are spending enormous amount of time with this. You have to decide why is this important? Why does this matter to you? And when you are making this decision, you are, I would like to stress the role of passion, right? That you are passionate about certain issues and also about activism, that your work is actually intervening into an academic field, into a political field, into a memory field. Right? So therefore, your work matters. And this increases your responsibility. It you know, underlines the ethical dimensions. The second point is that you have to set the goals. What do you want to achieve? 
And you have to, before you ever, you know, think of going to the field or even start making arrangements for the interview, you have to have a bullet point list. These are the points, these are the reasons why I'm doing this. This is what I want to achieve. These are the questions I have. Uh, and these achievements uh, should be realistic, but at the same time extremely ambitious, right? And very responsible. Uh, you have to, the third point is about self-positioning. You have to be, you know, you have to position yourself. And in some of the papers you have submitted, you very clearly submitted the concerns and the issues about being in an interview situation with somebody who is, let's say, in a precarious situation or uh, who is of different color, who is coming from a, a different uh, social background. So this is actually the self-positioning is the first point for understanding and also for the analysis of the, of the uh, interviews. Also, what are the foreseen unintended consequences? What, what do you, when you are sitting in front of your computer, uh, your horribly expensive MacBook in front of your computer in, in a dark room drinking, uh, you know, coffee, thinking about what, what ca can go wrong? And, you know, be imaginative and, you know, think about that there are lots of things which can go wrong, uh, especially in personal communications and especially with, uh, uh, you know, what are the uh, 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 kind of, uh, uh, what is the afterlife of your project? So uh, what will be the impact of your project on the interviewee? So there are lots of questions you actually have to ask uh, uh, when you are uh, uh, doing uh, uh, this interview. Uh, the concept of shared authority, right? This is coming from one of the, re one of the readings from for today. And uh, this shared authority is a means and also as a relation. And I think, uh, Orshi, you wrote it in, the, in your uh, um, uh, reflection paper, that how, how difficult this shared authority uh, can be when you have got very different power relations involved. So therefore, the shared authority as a possible aim, as you know, it's a kind of utopian aim, but you have to try to achieve this. Also, you have to assess the possible means for doing your research. If you have got financial resources, if you have got emotional resources, and let me stress this, doing interviews is extremely difficult emotionally, and also the logistics. So let me give you an example. So the project we did with Luisa Passerini about love migrants, we, we received from the European Union Fifth Framework Project horrible amount of hundreds of thousands of euros in order to collect more than 150 interviews, hiring four or five research assistants, doing conferences, whatever. So that's a very different project, and we have got one book out of it, one collected book. It's a very different project when you are you know, doing your MA project. So when you are deciding about what kind of project you are doing, think about you know, your concerns, your borders, and your possibilities. And also, when you are doing oral history projects, especially big projects, there is always an emotional support. 
right? So if your and some of your projects are extremely uh, difficult as far as the emotional economy is concerned. So don't be shy asking for support from the CEO psychologist or the supporting center. So this is actually, you know, not it's not your individual bird like the cowboy is going, you know, on the horse against the sun and, you know, the sun sets and whatever. This is not an individual, you know, struggle. But you, you are not alone. So this is also an important point that this class expected to be a supporting class. And also if you need professional help, there are people to help you, right? Um, and the last point here about the, is about the afterlife of the project. So what do you do with the documentation? Starting with you know, the transcript, where do you keep the files? Who has got access to the files? And how do you disseminate the results? So who will be reading the, uh, the results? And uh, these are all should be taken into consideration when you are doing your uh, project. So what are the major issues? Uh, one is related to the authority, uh, the crisis of representation and the double narration. Borland already uh, pointed this out in her text that there are two stories going parallel when you are doing an oral history, at least, right? Uh, the story of the interviewee and your interpretation. And I would like to add another one, uh, which is actually what has happened, because this is the life course, if you remember. This is the plot and the fabula, the, the kind of conflict between the plot and the fabula. So you have got at least three levels, and none of them are actually fully accessible to you. So uh, who has got the right to say, this is what has happened. This is my interpretation. That is how you felt when certain things were happening. And uh, uh, the, who has the authority? And I would say that you as narrators, you have the responsibility. And that's why we are discussing here this issue now under the heading of ethics and legal dilemmas that you are professionals who are actually telling a story. And uh, this uh, double narration is a serious issue you have to take into consideration when you are constructing your narrative based on the interview you, are, you have collected. Uh, when you are doing the interview, the most important relationship which is influencing the content and also dissemination is the relationship to the interviewee. Right? And uh, that's why your most important decision is whom would you like to interview, how many times, when, and how, right? Because these are the, the relationships to the inter relationship to the interviewee influences what kind of stories you will be receiving. Let me give you an example. When I was doing this uh, book project about Julia Reich, I was interviewing her uh, son, who is one of the leading distance and who is um, uh, the stage uh, uh, designer for the Academy Award-winning film, The Son of Soul. And uh, he was extremely suspicious about my project. 
He was extremely suspicious about my project because this is his life, his mother, his emotions. And because he has got this very troubled childhood, he was um, uh, for when at the uh, age of five months he was put into a forced adoption and he was in an orphanage till age of five. So he has got this very fragile emotional relationship to his mother. And therefore, it was really a long time till I gained the trust. And I have to say that sometimes we are working together now. I was organizing a, a PhD school on uh, transnational memory here at CU, and I invited him to be one of the uh, lecturers about, because he was the designer of the Auschwitz pavilion, uh, Hungarian uh, pavilion in Auschwitz. And uh, it's still, it's a developing relationship. So in a sense that your relationship with the interview, it doesn't end at the moment you are switching off the recorder. It has an afterlife, it's a long process, and I would say that one of the uh, biggest awards is that you have got the interview is still talking to you. So that is one of my uh, big achievements that this neo-Nazi and uh, conservative women whom I was interviewing, if I'm meeting them in the street, which is happening very often because, as you know, the uh, uh, this... Um, uh, church at the corner of the Liberty Square is one of the uh, headquarters. So when I'm, you know, meeting them occasionally, and they, they are still greeting each other. So I consider it as a major achievement. Uh, uh, Schropes is using this term "paralyzed by privilege," and I just, you know, like to stress this term as well uh, because this positionality of being the in a power position that you are asking questions and the person is expected to respond. That has got some detrimental impact. And that's why I started with the point of silence, because sometimes you, what you get is silence, right? And what to do with that particular silence. And uh, when you are doing an oral history project, you have to very honestly ask the question, who is benefiting what, right? Who is gaining what? Because you are gaining an interview, you are doing a transcript, you are building your academic career, you are getting a degree based on the interviews, right? So therefore, what you should be at least doing is thinking about how can you, you know, return, how can you, you know, pay this back, or to at least somehow unease this kind of unequal uh, relationship. And uh, on the one hand, there are. Uh, oral history methods, which are participatory interviewing methods, which are uh, very often used, especially in uh, these privileged uh, uh, communities. But also, you might want to think about you know, giving a transcript of the interview or a copy of the interview to the interviewee. Uh, the Visual uh, History Archive, the Shoah Foundation, actually gave a copy of each and every interviewee, all the 52,000, a copy of the interview this person was giving to show it to the family members and to have it with them. It's interesting because they were getting a VHS cassette, so, so 52,000 VHS, which nowadays they are basically useless. So this is again a challenge what to do with the cassettes in 2016, but that's another issue. Um, who has got the right to the spoken words? because you have got you know, this immediacy. So when I told this, it's already passed. 
but it has been told, right? And it hasn't been written down. So you have got the spoken words, you have got the written words, and you have got the documented words. So, so if somebody is telling to you that, I'm telling you with confidence, don't put it down. So what do you do with the off-record information? Uh, there are several strategies with the off-record information. When you, because everything is decided by the interviewee. If the person is saying this is off-record, it's off-record, a punto, right? So there is no negotiation. The peace cannot, no, right? So don't, don't, don't do this, because there is a reason. So the first step, what you need to do is First, celebrate the silence, the unsilencing, right? Because this person could have been just silent, but decided to speak. So celebrate the unsilencing, right? The second is that appreciate the information you got, right? And keep it for yourself because you might need it at a other moment of your uh, uh, in your research. And thirdly, uh, try to uh, think about this whole interview situation, why this certain moment came. So understand the situation, why this person was saying, don't use this. And that might actually help you analyzing the, uh, the interview uh, later on. So the spoken word. Then you have got the written word, right, when you are doing the transcript. So, and that goes to the next bullet point about the legal issues, the consent form, the transcripts, and the right to correct your own words, text, and storages. Uh, so, the, when you have the transcript, what do you do with the transcript? Will you return it to the interviewee, or you will not return it to the interviewee? That's a serious professional decision. I have to say, very often, the interviewees are only giving uh, interview if they have the right to see the final product. And then when they see the final product, they start rewriting the interview. So therefore, my suggestion is that in the consent form, what you are, you have to sign with each and every interviewee, and there are several consent forms you know, on the internet, and I also uploaded one to the Doodle. You, sh you might want to put there a sentence that it should not be rewriting. Uh, that particular interview. But if this rewriting is happening, my suggestion is to uh, handle these two variations of the text separately, as if you had done two interviews. Because then you immediately have a material that you can contrast and compare. Right? And uh, uh, this uh, uh, transcript, then the corrected transcript, because very often, you know, you are just, you know, misspelling uh, uh, or miswriting or whatever, something in the transcript. That's absolutely normal. But when you have got really essential changes, it really, it very often happens that the interview is rewriting the whole paragraph because, as you know, the interview is a reflection process. So when you ask the question and the interviewee reflected about that particular event, but then some time passed and the interviewee reflected on his or her previous reflection on the question and some other issues came into the picture. So then that's the moment when you have got basically two responses, as if you had done two consecutive interviews, right? So who has got the right to correct the words, and uh, what, where to store it. 
right? And let me again suggest that you might want to consider keeping your um, interviews in the Open Society Archive collection uh, just for the use of others as well. Uh, the description is uh, and the legal uh, framework is there in the uh, on the Moodle. So that's basically it, and we will be continuing about the practicalities how to do these interviews.